now this is recording. RTI International Center for Forensic Science presents Just Science. Welcome to Just Science, a podcast for forensic science professionals and anyone who is interested in learning more about how real crime laboratories work. In episode three of the identification season, Just Science interviews forensic biologist Caitlin Rogers. Forensic scientists are always looking to improve the efficiency and accuracy of sexual assault kit testing. Caitlin Rogers is working to improve the procedure by using a modified direct-to-DNA approach to processing sexual assault kits. Listen along as our guest discusses processing, testing, and analyzing DNA samples from sexual assault kits. This season is funded by the National Institute of Justice's Forensic Technology Center of Excellence. Here is your host, Dr. John Morgan. And welcome to Just Science, the podcast for forensic science professionals. I'm John Morgan, your host with RTI's Forensic Technology Center of Excellence, a program of the National Institute of Justice. We're here this week at IAI's convention in San Antonio, Texas, in the middle of the summer of 2018. Today we have with us Caitlin Rogers, who is going to be talking about the predictive value of acid phosphatase and prostate-specific antigen testing with respect to uh, using them as presumptive tests. Welcome to the program, Caitlin. Hello, and thank you for having me on. This is actually a very interesting topic and a very current topic. For those of you who know, uh, RTI is also involved in the Sexual Assault Kit Initiative, and I know both NIJ and BJA have done some research looking at different approaches to presumptive testing. Let's talk a little bit first about kind of the purpose here. So we uh, have a, a sexual assault kit. It might be collected in a variety of different ways, but what are the questions we're trying to answer using either the, the P30 or the AP test? Uh, that'll be a lot easier to say than acid phosphatase <laughs> and prostate-specific antigen. I've already stumbled over this. So from now on, it's AP and P30. Perfect. So we have standard sex assault kits in the state of Colorado, pretty much all across the state. And the first step in our processing scheme is typically to test each of the swabs collected within the kit for the presence of AP, and analysts can additionally perform a P30 test to see if seminal fluid might be present on a swab. This indicates to the analyst that um, not only do you have seminal fluid, but you might also have male DNA, which is something that obviously we want to be testing for in the vast majority of sexual assault cases. So currently, our kits come with, uh, we're sort of relics. We have uh, smear slides that are prepared by the same nurses during the collection of the kit. And those are collected from oral, anal, vaginal, and cervical collections. And then we also have the swabs from oral, anal, vaginal, cervical, external genitalia. And then we also have miscellaneous body swabs as the nurse sees fit to collect. So we do training with our SANE nurses across the state to try and standardize the kits as much as possible. But that's pretty much our starting point in every case. Now, with respect to the processing flow, is the AP and P30 test, are they generally considered presumptive in the sense that if they come back negative, they would not have then gone on to further processing? So that kind of depends on your agency's policies. At CBI, we at least take forward a minimum of two samples from every SANE kit uh, for DNA analysis to screen for possible male DNA. So our way of processing historically has been to look at the smear slides that are collected to examine them for potential sperm. 
and then to perform uh, the necessary presumptive testing on the remaining interior body cavity swabs and then the external swabs where an ejaculatory event might have occurred. We also do saliva testing at our lab, so we have that at our disposal if needed for testing neck or breast swabs, for example. Now, I assume P30 is definitely only seminal, but educate me, is AP also only from seminal fluid, or would you also see that if there was some nuclear DNA present? So both of them can have cross-reactivities. So AP is really considered a presumptive test, especially because we have pretty well-documented cross-reactivity with female vaginal secretions as well, which obviously in a case of sexual assault is a significant dilemma for us as scientists to interpret those AP results. Uh, For instance, how do you interpret an AP positive result if no male DNA is detected subsequently in that sample? Was that truly a positive AP from seminal acid phosphatase or is that potentially vaginal acid phosphatase? So how does the test actually occur? I mean, how do you actually detect the AP or P30? Are they, are they the same, same basic chemistry method or what are the methods generally used? So our AP test is a standard um, like Brentamine Fast Blue B reaction. So that's a quick color change test. So CBI uses a two-minute cutoff to interpret a positive result. So uh, essentially we do a water overlay with filter paper to transfer a portion of the sample uh, from the, say, vaginal swabs or external genitalia swabs to the filter paper, and then we apply our test chemicals, and if they turn from clear to purple, uh, it indicates to us that acid phosphatase is present in that sample. What's the limit of detection generally on an AP test? So our in-house study showed that it was about one to a thousand, I believe. Okay, which is still pretty significant, I assume. I don't know how much concentration there would be in seminal fluid, you know, pure seminal fluid, but I assume that one to 1,000 still means there's gotta be a fair amount of material there. It's, yeah, it sounds pretty good, but then if you consider the, you know, if it's, say, an internal ejaculation, that's going to be diluted in the female vaginal secretions as well. Typically, that seems to be pretty good for what we can use it for, for screening purposes. But basically, this research was undertaken to see how effective this tool is for actually screening for male DNA. So ultimately, we're interested in, you know, those what-if questions in court. Is it a false positive? Did we detect vaginal acid phosphatase rather than seminal acid phosphatase, we don't know with the test that we have. Right, because it's just a color change. If you got an AP positive or negative, P30 also is variable with respect to when that would be done. Why would a P30 be done after the AP? So that's a test that's at the discretion of the analyst to perform in our laboratory. Some labs are a little bit more stringent about when it's required. So in our lab, most of the time, if the sample is AP positive, but then the smear slide that corresponds with that sample is negative for sperm, the analyst might go back and perform P30 on the swabs to see if there is potentially seminal fluid from a vasectomized male present, just because it's an additional seminal fluid marker. Because the P30 would still be there. Yes, it would not Mm -hmm. be affected by the vasectomy. So that's an instance where it might be used in our lab. It used to be used pretty regularly, but we have kind of dialed back how often we're performing that test in the lab because our state standard kits went from four swabs per collection to two. And since we consider that a partially consumptive test, since you are actually taking a cutting of the sample, uh, that removes part of that sample that we can't use for DNA testing anymore. So I didn't know that states had been making that change. Do you know what that was driven by? Is that just a money thing or is there a procedural thing that drove that? 
So we moved to that a couple years ago in Colorado, but that actually was in the NIJ uh, best practices recommendations document. And I think from conversations with the SANE nurses that we do during our trainings and stuff, it helped simplify the evidence collection process. So there was a lot of discussion about, okay, so what do I swab with one swab versus two swabs versus four swabs? Because we used to have the variability throughout the collection in our kit where internal samples were four swab collections, external samples were typically two, unless it was a small surface area, and then the nurse was supposed to use one. So it was creating a lot of variability between nurses and between collections. Sure. So to simplify things throughout our state, they're collecting everything with two, unless it's, say, fingernail swabs or something, where they, they simply can't swab that surface area with two swabs and get a good, decent sampling on both. Sure, and of course, your testing... Uh, the, the presumptive testing might vary a great deal across the swabs, right? Potentially, but for us, we're more concerned with um, not consuming the evidence. So we are required in Colorado to maintain half of the initial substrate for potential defense testing. So if we only have then one swab to work with, say we do AP testing and it's positive, and then we look at the slide and it's also positive, we've already confirmed semen containing spermatozoa is on that item. There'd be no reason to go back and do an additional test to say, hey, semen is still here sure. uh, by doing P30. But that P30 test requires consuming about a third to a quarter of the swab. So that's just taking away more and more that we could be using for DNA. So we have to weigh whether or not we want to do the additional presumptive testing to try and qualify a potential DNA profile developed or if we want to conserve everything we have and try to get a DNA profile from it. Yeah, yeah, very difficult. So what are the alternatives? I mean, what else could you do? You could, I mean, one thing you could do is just go straight to DNA, right? And yes. not worry about that because you'll just assume the sane who collected it had a reason to collect it and that was and that's enough to warrant having a DNA test but that's generally not done in Colorado or is that do you know anywhere where that's actually the practice so direct to DNA has is kind of a newer approach that's been implemented in a couple labs and we sort of modeled our direct to DNA approach based on information we received from other labs who had already implemented it, including one in Canada, uh, the USACIL lab, and a couple others that we'd had some conversations with. So we tried to basically adapt what they had learned and what they had implemented with our current instrumentation and our number of personnel and our capacity. So there's also something called a Y-Kit that could be used. Did you all look at the Y-Kit as an alternative here? So we do YSTR testing at the CBI lab anytime we have a male reference in a case and if a sample is suitable for YSTR analysis. So we have a quant threshold that we employ. Uh, so essentially, if, if we have enough male DNA to amplify one cell's worth of male DNA, we will attempt it if we have the appropriate male reference and if it's probative to the case. But we evaluated it. We had a committee that tried to evaluate uh, our efficiency of our processes across the DNA system. And we evaluated implementing a Y screening process. And we decided not to go with Y screening, but instead going with a modified direct-to-DNA approach. Um, the difference being for, well, from at least our perspective, was why screening involves doing essentially a dirty quant where you take a portion or a full swab from the kit and you do a quick and dirty extraction. And this is typically with like glacial acetic acid, so it's a little bit rough on the sample. And then doing a quantification reaction on that to see if there's any male DNA in that dirty quant sample. And then if there is male DNA, then you go back to the original sample and perform a full extraction on it. 
and start from the beginning. So this sure. would be extracting every sample with male DNA twice, but also the protocol that we were looking at from the manufacturer that we use, it actually looked like it had a 90% success rate where 10% uh, of the time the samples that had no male DNA detected in the dirty quant yielded DNA profiles when a full extraction was done. And that um, to false us- False negatives. Yes, yeah. and that to us was an unacceptable failure rate for the type of casework that we do. So instead we decided to go, and especially with, again, going to two swabs, per the NIJ recommendation, then that limits our initial starting substrate. We didn't want to use a full swab or a half swab for an extraction that then we can't develop a profile from. The flip side of that is, of course, if you are relying on things like AP, they probably have lower reliability than 90%. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. so, tell us about, so you all wanted to do a really good evaluation of this. And by the way, Caitlin has a master's from the Boston University School of Medicine, which means that she has a pedigree of excellent work in forensic biology and DNA, and, and the research that's done at a Boston University is excellent. I don't know how many of the folks you were involved with there, but they have an excellent reputation. So you uh, approach this uh, how in terms of trying to understand how effective the AP and P30 tests were. You know. uh, the first step was uh, once our lab moved in January of 2017 to using the Quantifiler Trio, Wi-Filer Plus, and Global Filer chemistries for quant and amplification, we wanted to test and see now we have such great sensitivity with our quant and amplification chemistries. We wanted to know how consistent are these with our uh, serology screening techniques? Or do we have greater sensitivity in DNA than we do in serology? At one point, that wasn't the case. So, you know, back in the day, the best you could do was say, like, oh, this is blood and it's blood type, whatever. So I think DNA has always come behind serology because serology was established first. And obviously, we're in a field of precedent. But what we were looking at was, is that really the case still? Or is our sensitivity so much greater now that it doesn't make sense to continue doing things the way we have in the past. So that was kind of the framework of this study. And also to evaluate whether or not we're reporting things appropriately and we're testifying appropriately. We want to make sure that everything we're doing is to the best of our abilities. So that was kind of the framework that this project was started with. Sure. And uh, does CBI, do you all look on this as a kind of a research study or was this more of trying to just do a quicker assessment or what was your scope in that regard? How ambitious were you allowed to be basically in doing the work? Um, it was kind of a combo of the two. So it started off as a research proposal um, to collect casework data. Obviously, as a graduate student, I you know, was super interested in doing this kind of stuff. I did a similar project at Boston Police Department where I had my internship during graduate school. And that project is still ongoing um, with some of the analysts there. So I'm hoping that they publish that soon because I know they have awesome data from their case files because they were able to go back a really long way to talk about persistence of APMP30 based on casework evaluations rather than what's currently in the literature for the most part is based on model populations and consenting adults. And that's just not really indicative of what we actually see in casework. Sure. So right. for us to actually, I mean, we have the wealth of resources with having a state system where we are paperless. So we have electronic data from all of our cases shared across the state. So we have a huge amount of cases and with us being one of the first states to implement mandatory processing of sexual assault cases. We do have a wealth of data that I wanted to sift through and see if we could get this information for ourselves and as well as for the rest of the forensic community. Okay. So tell us about your methodology. What, uh, so you looked at a variety of different collection methods 
as well. But you were also looking at your casework samples and then classifying them is what you were doing? Or tell me about all that. So I had two awesome interns helping me out with this project, uh, Bobby Trout and Carissa Resnick. And we went through and did a deep dive of our case database. <laughs> and yes. this was painstaking for the interns, so they were good sports. But we went through and collected data. So we had specific criteria for qualification for the study. And we went through and dove through our limb system. And we pulled the date and time of the alleged assault, the date and time of the kit collection, whether or not there had been a consensual partner, and uh, then on top of that, we went through and pulled the AP and P30 male quant global filer and Y filer plus results, any CODIS entries and any CODIS hits for any sample that qualified for inclusion in the study. So it was a lot of data to sift through. We sifted through 2,479 cases examined at CBI from January 2017 through June 2018. And unfortunately, only 624 of those qualified for inclusion in the study. But that still, still gave us a pretty good yeah. number of casework samples to work with. So Sure. And so uh, when you look back at that, did you actually do some reanalysis of the actual kits then? Or were you looking at the results that were, that were done when the original screening was occurring? We did no reanalysis in this project, so this was just a data mining uh, okay. project from our limb system. So just recording what the original analyst had had interpreted the presumptive test results as, and it's not common practice in our lab to photograph those or anything, but they are electronically recorded at the time of the kit processing. So we did have that data to pull from. What was the result? How accurate? Let's start with AP, uh, because that's the one that's mo the most key, right? So what's, right. What, what did you all find? So what we found is if you have a positive AP result, your chances of getting downstream male DNA detectable, at least at quant, is pretty good. But we had about um, a 30% what we called positive discordance rate, which means if your AP test was positive, but there was no male DNA detected. So approximately 30% of the time, the test didn't tell you your final outcome, essentially. Sure. And I think it's important to note this isn't mean so it's it was, a f that's a false positive then in that case, right? So well, you're, it's it, saying that there's something there for you to be able to find, but it, you weren't able to then get it using the method of DNA work that you were doing. So it's kind of a, an academic debate, I suppose, but because the AP test isn't detecting male DNA, it's detecting AP. Right. So it's not really a false positive, but for the way we use it as a screening tool, it isn't telling us what we want it to. Because the so, female fraction could still be causing the positive in the test. Right. So we're not using this just to say whether or not there's seminal fluid there. We're using this test to say, is this our best sample for DNA? And what we found is these tests are not really doing that for us. So we had a decently high positive discordance rate where the AP test was positive, but then there was no male DNA present. But on the flip side, when the AP test was negative, our odds of detecting male DNA was essentially a coin flip. We had about 55% of the samples across the board or more where if AP was negative, we still detected male DNA. Did that depend upon where the collection was taken from? Was it different for vaginal versus other places? So we evaluated results from oral, anal, vaginal, cervical, and external genitalia swabs in this study. And 
it varied between sampling locations, but in general, it was around 50% or higher that were not quite telling us what we wanted it to be. The most discrepant was in the external genitalia, where the AP results, if they were negative, we detected male DNA still 79% of the time. Right. Which um, makes more sense with an external sample, because obviously there could be trace DNA deposited as well from you know friction and stuff. But that's still an insanely high number, right? Seventy-nine percent. Right. So basically the same because you're getting seven out of ten accuracy on the true positives, right? Right. Yeah. So it's almost it's it, it basically is worthless on the external ones completely. What we found is they were not informative for um, for DNA testing downstream, especially on the external stuff. Well, yeah. Um, I mean, if it's seventy percent of the case, there's a there's successful DNA if there's a positive test, and basically 50, 55 percent. If it's negative. If it's negative. <laughs> right. That's not exactly a lot of discrimination in a test. Exactly. Uh, so that was something that, you know, we suspected, but to see data behind it was pretty jarring for us. Sure. Was the P30 better? Well, that's what I think people tend to believe, is that P30, it's still presumptive, but people tend to believe it's more confirmatory than AP is. And I think that's a kind of a result of how it was marketed when it first came out um, and first came onto the forensic scene. And from how our agency has handled P30, as well as from what I've seen from other labs, like SOPs and from graduate school and stuff like that, that... Most labs tend to value P30 results over AP, and what we found in this study was that they were about the same or worse in most samples, except for the anal samples. So it did seem like uh, P30 results were a little bit more reliable on anal swabs than AP, but everywhere else they were essentially equivalent or performed a little bit worse, actually. Um, Sure. And I shouldn't say they perform worse. It's they didn't correlate with male DNA quite as well as AP did. So well, yeah. Sen- I mean, but if you're going to do a presumptive test, I mean, like drug screening, a lot of presumptive testing occurs. But you generally expect the the next step to be pretty close to the presumptive test. You want that presumptive test to be very, very accurate. And if you have something that just isn't. You're basically wasting time and money right? and sample as well, which is obviously yeah. just as serious. Well, and on top of that, we're reporting these results as indicating seminal fluid. So if they're not really indicating the way we think they are, that's a problem. So that was the kind of the basis of this project. And what we found was essentially that since positive test results seem to be pretty well correlated with our ability to detect male DNA and negative test results don't at all. Our lab, as I mentioned, as well as others, seem to like values P30 results over AP. So if an AP test is positive, the analyst might choose to do an additional P30 test. And if the P30 test is negative, that will typically get reported out, and it does in our lab, as being negative for seminal fluid, even though you have conflicting test results, because P30 has in the past been, uh, I guess, believed to be more confirmatory. But what we're finding is we're probably disregarding positive seminal fluid test results in favor of a false negative, if you will, P30 test result. So, I mean, there are two things that come to mind on it. I mean, one is the two tests might also be orthogonal in the sense that combining the information from both of them might be better than they are by themselves. So is that the case? Did you all do that depth of analysis to be able to answer that question? So we have limited P30 data 
to work with. As I said, it's kind of at the discretion of the analyst, and a lot of the P30 testing has gone to the wayside in our laboratory. So I didn't feel like we had sufficient data to really actually perform stats on that. <laughs> so looking at trends, we didn't really have enough to say much about that. So that is historically believed to be the case, and that's kind of how they've been handled is it's, you know, it's detecting two different components, so at least detecting two is better than detecting one, but then what do you do in the, you know, in the interim where one is positive and one is negative? How do you interpret that? Yeah, my next question is going to be in the context of my enormous regard for CBI. Like Boston University, excellent <laughs> institution, excellent people who work and they know what they're doing. But from a perspective of the study, it's also possible that either the kits that you are using or the way in which you were applying them may not be as strong as they should be, right? I mean, is there any issue there where people were like, well, maybe we're just not doing the testing as well as we might, or maybe we need to do a different approach, a different manufacturer or a test kit or something like that? In regards to the APMP30 yeah. testing? Mm -hmm. I mean, that is possible, right? Maybe, you know, maybe it's possible to use APMP30. Or do you all feel like you are applying it well and that these kits are about as good a job as you're going to be able to do? We all go through a pretty intense training program and, you know, we're using validated methods and procedures and we're using validated test chemistries and stuff. So all my coworkers have extensive experience and training using these. So I have no reason to doubt their reading of the tests and how they perform them. But it does show, I think, that it might be time for us to shift how things are done. So what I mean by that is our typical workflow, as I explained before, is examine all the smear slides and test all the swabs that might be, you know, an internal sample or anywhere where an ejaculation event might have occurred on the outside of the victim's body, evaluating those for seminal fluid and selecting our procedure in the past was selecting around two samples to be question samples to evaluate for foreign DNA. So what we found was that we were using our case circumstances, such as the amount of time elapsed between the alleged assault and kit collection, whether or not there was a consensual partner, whether or not there were multiple alleged assailants, that kind of thing, and the nature of the assault. We were using that information as well as our presumptive test results and our slide test results to pick our best one to two samples. And we might have 14 samples in a kit. So if we're starting with unreliable information with our presumptive test, how are we really doing that? This study was to show whether or not that's actually possible. And I think the findings of this show that it's really not. Right. There's been a lot of work lately, both, you know, in terms of the research work that NIJ does and within the Zaki project about trying to understand sexual assault kit processing and deficiency. And it's very, very difficult to come up with an, uh, an approach other than just do them all. That truly is rigorous because you, at some point you're also trying to correlate case factors that aren't necessarily going to hold through once you actually have that DNA test in hand and you actually understand it just from a pure scientific, what is the forensic science telling you? So as a result of this study, we proposed and implemented, well, we proposed a modified direct-to-DNA approach where basically we evaluated our current level of automation. We evaluated the number of personnel that we have and the number of samples that we get in a typical sex assault kit and realize that the approach that some of the other labs have taken with direct-to-DNA is not practical for our lab, that we don't have the degree of automation needed to actually do that. So some of the labs that are doing direct-to-DNA to try and get around this problem of unreliable presumptive tests is doing a differential extraction upfront on every sample in the sex assault kit where the possibility of an ejaculatory event occurred. That's a lot of samples. You know, when you do a diff, then you have twice the number of extracts that you're then quanting. 
I mean, it would just massively increase the amount of time that we spend doing extractions and uh, the amount of samples that we're quanting. And we might do that whole process and there might be no male DNA in that sample at all. So why did we spend the time doing a diff on it? So we evaluated and we don't have the capacity to bring on an additional robot in each of our facilities to do differential extractions. So that was an option that's not really on the table for us at this point. So our approach instead was, as I said, modified. So we do still have smear slides in our kits, which most people are like totally freaked out to find out because we're one of the last states I think that still has those sure but the same thing could be done with if the analyst was to prepare an extract slide in the lab from a swab from a swab yeah but we have those smear slides and we're just used to looking at them so it's not a problem so we evaluate those for the presence or absence of sperm and if there is sperm on the slide then we do a diff on it and if not no differential extraction is performed and it would be a regular prep filer just a traditional extraction we use the prep filer chemistry but just a regular extraction otherwise sure. so if you don't do a differential extraction though what do you do with all those samples that you aren't doing? Because as we know, I mean, as, and we already covered it, just because it doesn't have sperm there doesn't mean that there might not be a male fraction. Correct. So we went through and developed with our, we have a whole committee that worked on a proposal for a modified direct-to-DNA approach. So what we're doing is evaluating the circumstances of the case. So as I said, the amount of time that it elapsed between the alleged assault and kit collection, as well as the number of alleged assailants, and whether or not there's a consensual partner to determine what samples need to be analyzed. So we're following the NIJ guidelines of within 24 hours, we're looking at everything. Over 72 hours, we're not going to be looking at oral or anal anymore. Um, so we follow those guidelines as far as timing goes. And then other than that, we're looking at the slides that are contained within the kit to determine whether or not differential extractions need to be done. And if any of those slides are positive and there's only one male assailant and there's no consensual partner, then we might only take forward one sample for DNA, that sample that had a good sperm score on it and the victim's buckle swabs. But if everything is negative in the slides, we're gonna take forward everything and do a full extraction with our traditional extraction method and quant to see if there's any foreign DNA detected. Sure, because if you did deploy robotics, you would definitely change how you might do that flow, right? Uh, we might. So there's still kind of the debate in our lab about, you know, do we spend the time up front looking at slides? Basically what we found in this was from our pilot study with our workflow, we ended up quanting on average about two samples more per kit, but we ended up amplifying the same number of samples. You're just amplifying better samples. So with this process, we're narrowing out some of the samples up front in cases where we might only need to run one sample. So say if there's a you know, high sperm score on the vaginal swabs and the victim is only alleging a single male assailant and has no consensual partner, we might only need to run the vaginal swabs and her buckle swabs. And we might not need to run the other 13 swabs because once we've established his sperm is in her body, we don't need to establish his DNA is on 13 other places on her per our statutes in Colorado. So we are trying to balance. And so while some cases might have 14 samples go forward for DNA, some might only have one. So in the end, it kind of averages out. Whereas if we bring on robotics and get rid of that initial screening process altogether, we're going to always be taking upwards of 20 samples per kit. Right. That's so a lot. It's a yeah. lot of samples, right? Yeah. So for us right now, you know, the more practice you get under the microscope, the better you get at it. So yeah. 
basically what we're finding now is this process saves us about 15 minutes of time, at least in every kit up front, without having to do the presumptive screening. But we are still saving you know, downstream time and money by not extracting and quanting samples we don't need to, but we're also extracting and quanting every sample that needs to be extracted and quanted. Well, so that's fascinating. <laughs> so you bring up a lot of issues that are really difficult issues for crime laboratories to deal with right now. Yeah, we're just trying to do the best science we can with the resources we have. So this is kind of our approach to doing that. So we did a pilot study with our modified workflow that we put together. And we saw, on average, as I said, about two samples more were being quanted per kit. It saved about 15 minutes of time in the serology lab. And because we're analyzing approximately the same number of samples, we're not spending any more time doing interpretations. We're not stuck at our desk doing more interp. Mm -hmm. But we did see with this a 56% increase in interpretable global filer profiles obtained and a 76% increase in CODIS entries. Wow. Wow. That's a huge, huge impact. Right. I mean, you think 2018, right? Because we've been in the middle of DNA revolution for about <laughs> 20 years now. Mm-hmm. And so to have that kind of an impact in 2003, people were like, oh, well, yeah, of course. But 2018, that's amazing. Yeah. I mean, that's incredible to think that we might be missing that many over the years. Well, I mean, I think basically our tools are continuously improving. So I think we have a responsibility to evaluate and continue to improve what we're doing as well. My hope is that this will be something that other labs can potentially implement as well because, as I said, it doesn't involve an additional increase in robotics. It's not anything that requires validation. It's just a workflow change. So this was something that we piloted over the course of three months, and we were able to see such good results that then it was implemented across the state starting in July this year in um, all of our CBI labs. So, okay. so far, so good. <laughs> That's fantastic. That's fantastic. That's really, really great information and very much appreciate you being on the podcast with us today. Well, thank you for having me. So this has been Caitlin Rogers, who is with the Colorado Bureau of Investigation, talking about forensic serology and DNA casework. And certainly appreciate this as part of our DNA work. And thank you so much for listening in today. Next week, Just Science interviews Robert Thompson from the National Institute of Standards and Technology as he discusses the Moalala Forest serial murders in Oregon. Opinions or points of views expressed in this podcast represent a consensus of the authors and do not necessarily represent the official position or policies of its funding.